welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, this is Anthony Diana from Reed Smith. Welcome to today's Tech Law Talks podcast on disinformation and social media. Joining me today is Scott Mortman, someone I've known for many, many years, decades actually, who has a lot of experience in disinformation and social media. So Scott, why don't you give a little introduction and, and the reason why you're here? Sure. Thanks, Anthony. I'm happy to. And thanks for having me on this podcast. For the last four years, among other clients, I've been an advisor to a company called Cyabra, which detects and reports on disinformation online generally, but social media specifically. And they cover all platforms, and their focus is measuring the authenticity of users. In other words, detecting fake users and bots. And so that's given me sort of a front row seat to the changes and growth in the field of disinformation over at least the last four years through, through the internet. Some of your listeners actually may have previously heard of the company Cyabra. They were the advisor, the factual advisor to Elon Musk in his efforts to withdraw from the Twitter acquisition. When I emphasize factual support, the focus of Cyabra during those few months was to sort of prove his claim that there were more than 5% fake users on Twitter. We had no involvement whatsoever in his legal case. I have my own opinions as to whether or not that would be successful. But factually, he, he was on point and Cyabra was able to determine that there was a much higher percentage of fake users on Twitter for the period in question. So, Scott, let's start with the basic premise of what is disinformation in social media? What are we talking about? And, and what you sort of see as the impact that it has both on organizations and people who are involved in disinformation or maybe the subject of a disinformation campaign. Sure. Before I do that, let me just sort of emphasize the distinction between misinformation and disinformation for your listeners. I mean, misinformation is the familiar story of a family relative that, you know, sees something on Facebook or Twitter online and then passes it on without verifying whether it's true or not. Disinformation is more insidious. It's it basically uh, someone who, with the intent to deceive, passes on false information with the intention of trying to influence behavior or conduct or discussion that's happening online. And it also obviously impacts real world activities. And we saw that with many elections around the world in the last few years, and of course, with uh, vaccine disinformation during the recent pandemic. So with that distinction in mind, um, yeah, let me, let me talk about, I guess, l- l- let me focus on maybe two of the biggest changes I've seen, uh, one on the negative side and one on the positive side. Uh, on the negative side, I've noticed in working with Cyabra, and this has been reported by uh, others as well in the field, that it currently takes far fewer fake users to effectively influence a greater number of real users uh, on social media. And what I mean is that when I began advising the company, we would often see in a particular discussion that require somewhere, let's say, above 20% to 30 35% fake users in order to effectively influence a conversation or discussion. And what we're now finding increasingly is that it takes as few as five to maybe 15% fake users to actually have an impact on real people, whether or not they're willing to pass on the information knowing it's false, or whether they're actually deceived and passing on the information. And so uh, in some of the studies that we've done in the last year or so, 
you know, we've had figures where you've had on average, let's say 10% fake users in a discussion that have had a significant impact on online conversations, which can involve millions of people. And it's international, right? There are no boundaries to the internet. So that's, that's, that's a negative problem that has, has occurred over the last few years. On the positive side, the detection technology has improved greatly. So again, if I focus on the company I'm most familiar with, Cyabra, for example, they rely on machine learning, AI, to continually improve the detection algorithm. So in each iteration, it's constantly getting better. The industry standard typically for determining accuracy of whether someone is real or fake is now roughly around 80 to 85%. And Cyabra, again, for example, can achieve over 90% accuracy in determining fake users. So on the one hand, you have the ability to more effectively spread disinformation. And on the other hand, you have the ability to more effectively detect, monitor, and, and report on disinformation, which is why I believe it might have been National Geographic. One of the magazines recently called disinformation the latest Cold War because of this battle between uh, people that are trying to negatively influence conversations and people that are trying to root those, those people or, or bots out you know, if they're automated. So Scott, I'm assuming that in this Cold War, that the, the people who are creating disinformation are, are ahead of the people that can detect disinformation. Is that accurate? It's a, it's a real battle. I, I would say it swings back and forth. In general, that probably uh, is true. But as I mentioned, the, you know, the detection technologies are constantly improving. So we, you know, every time we achieve par, there's another advance in the ability to create disinformation. But I think the important thing also to discuss in this context is the way I see it, at least, there are probably four different entities that all have to act in order to reduce disinformation. And we were just discussing one of them, right, the detection companies themselves and the technology. The second of, the, of those four entities would be consumers, which are the users of social media. So they themselves need to become better educated on disinformation and to be able to use reliable tools and sites that are available on the internet that, so they can check that information before they share it. And I do think that consumers are becoming wiser to misinformation and disinformation and becoming a little bit more proactive in terms of verifying things before they send it. Um, not always, but uh, in, in many instances. I think a lot of um, people would dispute that, Scott. But yeah, and look, that could be an, that could be an, that could be an optimist point of view because obviously there's there's still quite a bit of disinformation. But let me let me rephrase it, which is that if you're a consumer and you're interested in not spreading yeah. disinformation, then you have a much greater ability to verify and check. If you are someone that has no problem either unintentionally or intentionally spreading uh, false information, well, then you're right. You're going to go ahead and do it regardless of the resources, which comes to the two other entities that, that have to get involved. One are the platforms themselves, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, VK in Russia, you know, all the major platforms, right? So it used to be that if you published and profited from a mass media platform like newspapers, then you had a legal obligation to verify the content. And that's no longer the case. So online and social media platforms now have a business model that's based on engagement, likes, shares, retweets, and the like. And so to the platforms themselves, it doesn't really matter if, it, if, the, if it's information or disinformation, real users or fake users that are spreading, posting, and, and, uh, and acting on their platform because the advertisers are paying for total engagement. So those distinctions often aren't made in terms of advertising revenue. 
And it's hard for the platforms to self-regulate against their own business interests. Essentially, what you have are PR efforts. You know, sometimes the Congress gets active and the public gets active and they'll, they'll launch what's more, more of a PR effort than an actual effort to remove disinformation from their platform. And so with the inability to effectively self-regulate, then the fourth entity that must get involved are the regulators themselves. And in the U.S., that's principally Congress because social media platforms at the moment are currently governed under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And that act was enacted in 1996. And what Section 230 provides, for those that aren't familiar with it, is it gives the online platforms immunity from civil liability for third party, in other words, user content that's posted on their platform. Now, the governing law, as I just mentioned, dates back to a time when there really was no social media. And so it's a bit like setting uh, rules for road safety before we had a national highway system. And so that law has to be reformed. And there are reforms that are being discussed and contemplated. A key consideration here is how do you impose civil liability while also allowing for free speech considerations to be uh, enforced. So there, there are plenty of people that are looking at sort of updating that act in order to hold the online platforms to a greater degree of liability than they currently have. But again, those are the four main entities that have to collectively work to reduce disinformation in order, in order for this problem to, if not disappear, at least abate. So Scott, obviously Congress may act, but we've already seen particularly with the Twitter acquisition, this has become very much high profile because it affected the valuation, right? That was one of the, the claims that Elon Musk made, which was there was too much disinformation. These bots, it was a higher percentage and therefore it, it decreased the value, which I assume for platforms out there is, is a big deal because if the valuation of their company is, is overvalued, then that's a problem because of this. So how would you address that? Well, look, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult problem, as, as Elon Musk himself found out. Ultimately, we all know he acquired Twitter and has spent, what has it been, the last two, maybe three weeks trying to fix it. If you read the, the, the media reports, and, that, and that's, I have no inside knowledge here. So if you read the media reports, he's having a quite difficult time doing so. I think many of those errors may be self-inflicted. We actually, as a company, Cyabra, has approached him to see if we can help. We, we haven't gotten a response yet. But I presume, by all accounts, you know, Elon Musk has a plan, and uh, or at least he claims he has a plan, and we'll see whether or not it's successful or not. But look, it, it is a problem on the one hand in, in instances like that, where you know you're publicly, where the future owner of the company is publicly going out and announcing, look, uh, the number of real users on the platform I'm about to acquire aren't what the company says it is. But that's also, to be clear, you know, that that's a bit like that scene in Casablanca where. You know, I believe it's Claude Rain's character says, I'm shocked to find gambling going on. People in the industry have long known that, you know, there, there's a higher percentage, regardless of which platform. And, and Twitter, I'm not even so sure is the worst. I think Facebook tends to be more egregious in the number of fake users on there. That it's, it's much higher than 5%. I mean, we've done, whether it's for corporate clients that are looking to protect their brands or governments, including the U.S. Department of State, we have done analyses on particular discussions in which the percentage of fake users are 30, 40%. We did one that got picked up by Reuters involving a, a tweet that was between China and, and Australia that ran a trade war on which there was about a 62, I think, or somewhere over 
a percentage of fake users that were effectively spreading a false information. I, I should I should mention here that it's often difficult to track the initiating source. In, in other words, the technology allows you to sort of go back pretty far to the original post, but if the original post is a fake user, how do you sort of pierce that veil and determine who's actually behind that initial post? In the instance I mentioned where China was spreading what we believe to be and what Reuters confirmed to be disinformation against Australia, when you have a percentage of about 60, over 60%, there's a strong indication that a state actor is involved. But beyond that, it requires you know, more detective work outside the online realm to determine exactly who is behind, who's the originating source or sources behind disinformation. So Scott, just thinking about it from you know, a company's perspective, and you talked a little bit of things, it's obviously this disinformation could have a problem you know, from a brand perspective, and they want to police it to make sure that this information around the brand is, is not out. I think in the you know, sort of acquisition context, I've seen some of this, and, and we've seen this with Elon Musk, you know, where disinformation, the numbers are wrong in terms of activity on that platform if you're buying a platform. And then I think just generally sort of in the ad tech space, right, where you're paying for clicks for digital advertising, this is obviously a big factor. So what could companies do who have any of these concerns to really make sure that they're comfortable that this information isn't really impacting their company in any of those contexts. Yeah, you, look, you've raised a number of, of very good examples. Fiverr works with a number of companies focusing on brand protection, particularly, uh, for example, licensing companies, where they draw a great deal of revenue, almost all their revenue from brands. And if the brands are attacked online, it has an immediate impact on, on revenue. So the conversations we typically have are with GCs and CISOs, the chief information security officers for these companies, because they're the ones that are involved in risk management. And most of them, if not all of them, are monitoring what's going on on social media vis-a-vis their companies and brands, based on my experience in those conversations, where they're not quite at the current state of, of affairs is not just understanding who's saying bad things about your brand, but whether or not the people that are saying them are real or fake. And that's becoming increasingly more important because companies will react to negative brand comments and you know comments that draw a negative brand image differently if they know that the people that are attacking them are real as opposed to fake. And we have been involved in cases, for example, we represented one company that was involved in, in being attacked on a Facebook platform and reacted quickly because they were, they were seeing a drop in, in sales and revenue and immediately issued an apology to something that it wasn't quite clear they had done. And what we, we, in this case, we did a postmortem. So we were hired by the company to better understand what happened. What we found was that a very high percentage of the people that were attacking the brand of this luxury good were actually fake users. So again, we weren't able to verify who they, who they ex- actually were, but there's strong indications it was a competitor that was looking to improve market share by going after the leading brand. So there are a number of instances like this in which companies have to do a better job of understanding not just how their brand appears online, but who is it that's either promoting them or attacking them online. Sort of to end this, I think it'd be good to sort of Think about what are the emerging risks that you see for disinformation in the future? We talked about some of the ones we know, but what do you think for the future of disinformation is for these companies? Well, the biggest one that that we haven't discussed, and it's worth just taking a minute to discuss, is deepfakes, which are digitally altered images. 
And everyone might recall about a year or so ago, for entertainment purposes, someone had created these deepfakes of Tom Cruise in all of these different situations, which I suppose if you weren't Tom Cruise was amusing. But the deepfake issue is, is actually uh, becoming a real problem. We've seen some of our governmental clients that have been actively working with us to try and address it, but it's going to spread into the corporate realm because the ability to digitally alter someone's image is becoming easier and cheaper to do over time, as is the case with all technology. So let's take a specific example. You can imagine having a corporate board meeting via Zoom, which many people, many companies are doing these days. And one of the board members is someone that you thought is an actual board member, but is actually not, is someone who is posing and successfully posing as, as a board member and gaining access to information and possibly even spreading information during the board meeting. And that, that sounds a little bit like science fiction, but it actually isn't. I mean, there was a case recently in a political realm where I believe, and I might be mistaken here, I believe it was a, a mayor in Germany that had a conversation with the mayor of Kiev. That conversation went on for 10 minutes before the, the, the German mayor got suspicious of whether or not the person he was speaking to was actually the person he thought he was speaking to. And it turns out he wasn't. So that has already, and 10 minutes is a long time to have a conversation where you can see someone and hear someone and not be able to verify that they are in fact authentic. So this is a growing problem. It will spread to the corporate realm. Again, there is an ability to sort of detect a deep fakes in real time as, as they go out, but it is difficult. And, and I will tell you, when you talk about who's winning the battle right now, it's the people that are spreading deepfakes because the ability to detect them in real time often involves going image by image, which requires a significant amount of bandwidth and it's, it's difficult to do. Again, the detection technologies for that are improving and getting cheaper and faster as well. But that's an instance in which I think the people that are creating deepfakes right now are winning the war. Well, Scott, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. I think this is certainly something that everyone should be keeping aware of and abreast of as the technology changes. And as we talked about, who wins the Cold War of disinformation is so critically important. And we'll see what happens legally as well if Congress acts to try to put some more regulation around all of this. So thank you, Scott. And we may thank have you, you on again. Thank you. Bye. Pleasure. Thanks again. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.